All right, well, um, if you have your book in front of you, uh, we also have this piece of paper. I actually have questions on here this time that we can fill in the answers to as we work through it. Um, so, uh, in this introduction, I, liked, I just like the way he juxtaposes two different sides of evangelism. Um, and we're going to look into that in a second here. Um, but just to, just to begin, I just made a little note in my book here um, that <clears throat> conversion is a beautiful thing. It's not something that's just, you say some words, you agree with some principles, and you go on your way. Conversion is a beautiful thing. And it's, it's a moment when somebody discovers that, you know, the Bible talks about how it's foolishness to those who are unbelieving. But conversion is a moment when somebody who used to think this was worthless, now they see the value of it. Now they see it as something that's true, something that's transforming, and something that's actually worth following and believing. Um, and it's priceless now rather than worthless. And that's something that happens at conversion. Um, and our part in the process is not to be the one who makes this gospel valuable, but to show them how it is valuable, how God made it valuable, and why is it that this is priceless? Um, that's, you know, we often I think that when we talk to people about the gospel, we are really good about the information, okay? We know the information, we know the news that's supposed to be being spread. We know the, the details of the life of Christ. And we know some different verses in Romans that deal with our sad state of misery and sin and God's solution and righteousness. Um, and we know, the, we know the news, but we fail to make it good news. Something that is delightful, something that is beautiful and good, and something to be desired. That's why Jesus in one of his parables referred to it as, he told a parable about how it's like a man coming going for a walk, and he discovers treasure in a field. And then he goes and he sells everything that he has, because what he has found is worth far beyond anything that he, has ever, that he could ever take possession of in his lifetime. So he sells everything that he has so he can go and buy this field, so he can have this treasure. People don't do that unless they really see the value of the gospel, and how good it is, and how it's priceless, worth more than anything on this earth. That's why I think that there are a lot of false converts walking around because they know the information, but they've never actually seen it as priceless like Jesus described it. They've never actually seen, ah, oh, this is, I am a sinner and God's mercy gives me his righteousness and seen the beautiful, um, the beauty of that. And we need to not just share news, we need to share good news. And we need to, it needs to be good to us, something that we delight in. <clears throat> so that's just a, a little short challenge. Just as I was reading this, this one page, those types of, those, that kind of just stuck out to me, and I was reminded of this fact. Um, that it's not just news, it's not just information that we download into our brain from verses in the Bible. No, this is beautiful. This is a relationship with God. This is God giving us righteousness that we don't deserve. Um, but to this sheet here that I passed out to you, <clears throat> number one, this is, these are things that, I've, that are in this chapter here, says, who is the great evangelist? And he gives the answer to that in the second to last 
um, <clears throat> uh, paragraph on this page. Who is the great evangelist, according to this chapter here? Who do you? God. God is the great evangelist. We must never forget this. That we are evangelists. Okay, we are tellers of the good news. But it is really God who um, is the one doing the seeking and the saving. And he kind of builds that with this verse that he has in this passage. Luke 15, verses 5-7. through seven. Um, if so, Would somebody like to read that from this chat? It's just right here in the middle of the chapter. If anybody would like to read that passage that he quoted here. And see, where is this rejoicing happening? In heaven, where God, God and His angels reside. Why? Because ultimately, God is the great evangelist, and we work for Him. We're the ones telling His message, and He is the one going out, seeking and saving the lost through us. Okay? <clears throat> and how, number two, so the answer to number one is God, if you want to write that in there, if you plan on keeping these, otherwise you can just pay attention. How else could we describe the work of the great evangelist? <clears throat> the great seeker and finder of people. Right, good. And that's actually the answer to the question. The great seeker and finder of people. And that's really when Jesus called Peter, he said, put down your fishing nets. I'm going to make you fishers of who? Men. men. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. I'm going to, make, I'm going to bring you in <clears throat> to this glorious opportunity to do what God is doing. To be a seeker and a finder of people. Again, remembering that first and foremost, this is the work of God. Not the work of man, because in, in, in Luke 15, God is the one <clears throat> being described as going and finding the lost sheep. When he's found it, he rejoices. And we are called to enter into this glorious opportunity with him to go and seek and find lost people and rejoice when they're found. <clears throat> Excuse me. Number three, what two conflicting descriptions does Tice use about evangelism in this introduction? So these are two, two qualities of it that describe the nature of evangelism. What do you think? I mean, it's, I think it's, I may, maybe you could have thought more about how to word that question. It's both nerve-wracking and joyful. Yeah, exactly. It's nerve-wracking and joyful. Or you could say, it's hard, and it's joyful. And Rico Tice has had a, a ministry of evangelism and discipleship for, for many, many years. And he's, he starts out his book, the first sentence that he tells us in his book, I find evangelism hard. <laughs> he's been doing it for years. He probably has a spiritual gift of evangelism if he's somebody who's well known for doing it. He probably has the spiritual gift. He's been doing it for who knows how long. And the first thing he has to say about it is, I find evangelism hard. Isn't that kind of relieving? Because <laughs> it is hard. 
it's not supposed to be something that we enter into and it's just like just like smooth as butter, everything's easy, I'm always successful, and I'm always just bounding with excitement and happy and because it's hard. It's hard to do. It's hard to get in front of people and open up a conversation about something they probably don't want to hear about, at least at first. It's hard to go up to your family member who knows you, perhaps they grew up with you or whatnot, and perhaps you don't have the best reputation with your family member, and then you start talking about the gospel. What are you talking to me about? You hypocrite. <laughs> I know you. I grew up with you. You're not perfect. Why are you telling me about this? Well, first response is, I know. That's why I needed this, because I'm not perfect. (laughs) The Bible doesn't say I'm perfect because I believe this. The Bible says we're all sinners. But we can all be saved by grace. You know, when somebody accuses you, who are you to tell me this? It's not that you start defending yourself. It's, I'm nobody. (laughs) I'm, I need this just as much as anybody else. And I got this, and that's why I'm excited about this. Because I'm somebody who is not perfect, somebody who's a sinner, looking, with, looking at condemnation as my ultimate end, and God swooped into my scene and saved me. So that's why I want to tell you about it. That's why it's beautiful. That's why it's exciting. Because I'm no longer headed towards damnation, and I don't want you to be either. This is why this is the foundations of why this is so val- this should be so valuable to people because this is salvation. This is how to be saved from condemnation and brought into a relationship with Jesus Christ. We start with the fact that we're excited that we have it ourselves. We're not so full of ourselves to think that other people need this. No, we start with the humility of I need this. I needed this and I still need this in my life. Because I'm still not perfect, and I still need God's gospel running through my veins. Uh, So, don't find it easy, it's nerve-wracking, but it's also joyful. And where does this joy come from? Why don't you tell me? Why don't you tell me what exactly about sharing the gospel with people is joyful? Have you ever been excited after talking to somebody about Jesus Christ? Been filled with joy? Where does that joy come from? Of knowing what he's done for you and you want to share that with somebody else. Right. Right. Exactly. You want to share what you have already. You've experienced this. You know this. It's yours. And it's something that's beautiful and valuable. If, you, if somebody has a need, and you know how to provide for that need, well, it's exciting to be able to come into their life and help them and build them up and bring them up. <clears throat> you know, the old illustration, if you're, if you're a, a doctor and you find the cure for cancer, isn't it exciting news that you have the cure for cancer? That you get to go and you get to help everybody who has cancer and see them brought back to life? That's exciting. But here we have the cure for our sin problem that we were born with, that Adam started many centuries ago. We have, the, we have the solution. It's right here in the Bible. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. That's exciting news, to bring people out of the fire. 
And our joy comes from the fact that we get to enter into their, to their scene, into their life on behalf of God. To help them see the truth. And to bring them from death to life. And some, some conversations are more exciting than others. Has anybody ever been in a gospel-centered conversation where you ended feeling miserable? Perhaps we have a lot of illustrations. Has anybody been there? I have. <clears throat> where you're talking to somebody about the gospel and they're just criticizing you and pushing you away, calling you names, calling you out as a hypocrite, rejecting you, angry. Nobody likes to be in a conversation where the other person's angry with them. They tell you to shut up. Yeah, they tell you to shut up. Yelling. Right, keep it to yourself. I don't want that. Some people endure physical harm because of it. One of the saddest ones was when the young man I was talking to, who I thought a lot of, was giving me answers that I'd given to somebody else when I was unsafe. Yeah, right. kind of ended up there. Yeah. That he was saying, well, I'll, I'll believe when I understand. Yeah. That's those are my exact words that I told Brother Darrell, I think it was. Yeah. I'll believe when I understand. Yeah. <laughs> Got it backwards for me. Right. It's not always, it doesn't always come with excitement. Sometimes it's just the first thing. Sometimes it's just hard. Sometimes it's just nerve-wracking. And you, enter, and you exit that conversation deflated. But we have a joy that's set before us. And, it's, and frankly, it's not, just, it's not about your joy. It's about their need. Right? And, that's why we, and it's about God giving us a commission to go and do this. Look at Psalm 115, verse 1. Psalm 115, verse 1, and we're going to read this in conjunction with Philippians 2, 10 to 13. Who would like to read Psalm 115, verse 1? Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory, for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. Yeah, and this is a good verse to memorize. It's on our stone now. Oh, yeah, there you, yep, that's right. I, I knew it. I, I knew this. Like, that, that's somewhere around here. I know I'd seen that. Yep. And this is a verse worth memorizing if you don't have it memorized already. Because this is something that if you want to pray something up to God, pray this <laughs> up to God. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory because of your mercy and because of your truth. And see, we see here. You know, he's over through, throughout the rest of the chapter, he's beseeching the Lord to act on his behalf. And not for our own sake, not, to, not, not for our own glory. Don't lift me up for my glory. Don't succeed for my glory. But to your name give glory, because you're the one who's merciful, because you're the one full of truth. And in our salvation, and as we're presenting the gospel of salvation, it's God who's the God of mercy. It's God who's the God of the truth that we're talking about. So who's supposed to be receiving the glory for this? Not the great evangelist that I would consider myself for having a great conversation with somebody, being able to confound the wise. But no, this is, all, this is God's mercy. This is God's truth. It's for God's glory that we're doing this. In Philippians 2, 10-13,
Paul says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Saying this as a reason for why Jesus came and did what he did. Therefore, he says, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And now keep the, you know, he's talking about, you know, when you're out there working, it's God working in and through you doing his good pleasure. Because remember, he's the great evangelist and he's working through us, the body of Christ. Say, take it seriously. When the Bible calls the church the body of Christ, it's like there's a body going out into the world doing what Jesus does with his hands, with his feet, with his lips, with his will. That's why we are the body of Christ. We are the the person of Jesus Christ physically in front of people, giving them what God wants them to have. So, as we see this in Philippians 2, 10-13, when he says, it's God's will that people would bow before Jesus Christ. And we are working out that will while we live on this earth. In fear and trembling, knowing this, that's God who's the one working in us, which gives us confidence and through us to do his good pleasure, the thing that pleases him. And and then we come to letter A under number four. We see this word vicariously. This isn't really something we, a word that we use on a regular basis. Vicariously can mean a number of different things in a number of different contexts. Okay? There's a scientific definition for it, there's social definitions for it. But vicarious, as far as what we need to understand, is an action done on behalf of somebody else. You know, people used to have grand vicars, kind of like a representative, politically speaking. To do something vicariously is to do something on behalf of somebody else. And if you want to write somewhere else on the page, it can also mean to treat the actions or experiences of another person as one's own. For instance, um, in a psychology class, you might learn about parenting styles where parenting is where parents live vicariously through their children, where a parent might feel like a failure themselves, so they define themselves by the successes of their children, so then they feel like a success kind of replacing the failure that they feel for themselves. That would be a parent living vicariously through their children, where they're not gauging themselves based off of their actions, they're gauging themselves based off of their children's actions. Um, And when we are embarking on a journey, on letter B, why do we embark on a journey to do what is both literally and vicariously God's work? So this is, when we're spreading the gospel, God is in a sense working vicariously through us. It's His work that he is actually flowing down through us. We don't, see, we don't see the thing coming from heaven and through us. But when we're out sharing the gospel, it's Philippians 2.13 that says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. He gives you his will. He gives you the power to perform his actions. And he sends you out and you do it. We often get puffed up in pride, thinking that our successes are our successes, when they're really God's successes, because God is the one living through us. We are the body of Christ, God's will being performed through the church. 
So why do we embark on a journey to do what is both literally and vicariously God's work? For God's glory and pleasure. Not for your own glory and pleasure. See, we do receive joy from this message. We do receive joy from performing in this commission that God has given to us. But that's not why we do it. In fact, if we're going to do it for joy alone, we might as well give up because you might endure more pain than you'd endure joy. Possible. Some people die doing this. The apostles all died doing this, except for John. But we do it fueled by the will of God, the passion for His glory and for His pleasure. And I want to look here. We're going to try not to spend too much time on this. We could if we wanted to. But look at Luke 15. Any questions up at this point? I don't want to keep... I tend to just keep moving on and moving on. And If you have something that you'd like to add, please do. Is there anything anybody would like to add? Okay. Well, in, in Luke 15, 1 through 10, we have a scene that starts by saying in Luke 15, 1, Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him and to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinner, and he eats with them. And he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after the one who is lost until he finds it? Okay, so and then he goes on in this story talking about how God is, you know, these parables showing us that God is passionately in pursuit of the lost. Okay, passionately in pursuit of the lost people, the sinners, the depraved. Okay, and in... From verses 11 through 32, he tells the story of the prodigal son. In in the first section, God is rejoicing over the sinners that return to him. God is rejoicing over finding people that are lost. And in this parable of the Good Samaritan, I'm not going to read the whole parable. Most of us are probably familiar with it. It's a story about a son who leaves home, takes his inheritance early, so that he can go and live however he wants. Perhaps he's... He felt like he was just restricted and he's bitter against his family and he wants to just get, be free from all these rules and regulations and living by house rules of his father. And he just wants to take his inheritance early and leave and go do whatever he wants. That's why it's called the prodigal son. Prodigal, prodigal, the word prodigal means to go and live flippantly and wastefully. He goes and he wastes all of his possessions, everything that he had. And this parable is most... It can be applied in a number of different ways, but it's most um, literally about Israel departing from God. And God rejoices when he brings the people back. I mean, that was part of their history for thousands of years. The people would rebel, they would go into exile, but God would bring them back. They would rebel, they would go into exile, God would bring them back. And essentially, this is first and foremost talking about, so the first section is talking about the lost in general. God goes and seeks and finds the lost. The second parable about the prodigal son is about Jesus, is about God bringing back people who are wandering astray from, they used to know the truth, they used to be part of the truth, but then they've wandered away. They've left home. And God rejoices when they come back and return and bringing them back to the family 
talking more about Jews. And then in chapter 16, 1 through 14, this is a little bit less commonly known. And even harder to um, to uh, explain. Let me just read it here. Luke 16, 1 through 14. He also said to his disciples, this is exactly right after um, the parable of the prodigal son. There was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that the man was wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account for your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I have resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do I owe you? So he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write down eighty. So the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much, and he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the righteous, un, unrighteous mammon, who will commit you to the, to, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now the Pharisees, who are lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. Um, and we see the response here by the Pharisees that they understood that Jesus was talking about them. These Pharisees, these rulers of the people, the religious rulers, they were supposed to teach the people truth. They were supposed to be going to the weak, the miserable, the sinners. They were supposed to be doing it. But yet, things have gone, gone so awry that when Jesus does it, they deride him. Jesus went to the sinners, and they mock him. But this is a job that God gave the Pharisees, to go and to teach the people the word, the law, the truth. But yet, they had gotten to such a point where they're not doing it. So, this is a story about how God is taking that ministry away from them. God is no longer entrusting to them the stewardship of the word. Because they weren't faithful with it. They were unjust stewards. So what are they left with? Their money. Their possessions. And that's it. That's all they get. That's all they get to have. They don't have the ministry from God anymore. Because they were unjust with it. They were, they were unfaithful to the ministry God had given them. And so they are left with simply whatever they can gain on this earth. Have at it. Have at the world. Because that's all you're going to get. Because you've been unfaithful to me. You've been unfaithful to the job that I've given you. So all you have now is the thing that you really wanted in the first place. Your money and your fame. Have at it. That's all you get. So this train of thought here, number five, what is the train of thought joining three parables found in Luke 15 and 16? 
The first two parables are telling us about how God is into the lost. He wants the lost. He wants the sinners. Those who have gone astray. Those are the people that he's interested in passionately going out and getting. But in this, in this last one, in, verse, in chapter 16, we see people, the Pharisees, who are given the task to go and do the work of God. Refusing to do it because they don't want to mingle with the sinners. They don't want to mingle with the unrighteous. So, that's taken away from them. And it's given to the foolish, as we see later on in the epistles and in, the, in, in Jesus' teaching as well. It's given to the foolish. The Pharisees had the opportunity to faithfully do what God had called them to do, but they failed. So the foolish get the job. It's taken away from these religious elite people who could have done the job. They could have. But they were unfaithful. And you see that in verse 14. The Pharisees who are lovers of money, they heard these things and they derided him. They knew he, they were talking about them. They knew his accusations were against the Pharisees. And we must be careful lest we become these Pharisees. This is just how I want to end this. We must be careful how we must end to not become these people. We have been given a great commission to go into all the world. We have been told that it's the sinners, the lost, the poor, that are the chosen ones of the kingdom. We've been told that, point blank, in Scripture. We must be careful, lest we be too full of pride, that we neglect to go and give the gospel to precisely those people that God intends it to be given to. We're, we're welcome to, to talk about the gospel among ourselves in a comfortable setting. But God has not called us to simply be in a comfortable setting. We need this setting to edify each other, to be built up in the word. We need this. But this is not all that we're here for. We also need to go to the highways and byways, to the filthy people, to the homeless, the prostitutes, the poor, the beggars, the people that nobody else in society really wants to go to, the orphans, the, all these needy people, so needy, so beggarly. But these are the people that God wants us to go to. All men, really. Let's be honest, all men. What? Cannibals. The cannibals. Headhunters. Right. And many sure. men. What? Will you go? Will I go? go first, and I'll go. Out. Okay, okay. So let's start with Exodus to Haiti. No, I mean, and we, and we must have a spirit within ourselves that says, where you, go, where you call, Lord, I will go. We must be humble in spirit to not, to not have any reservations against the Lord. That says, no, I'll go, but just to a place where I can be relatively comfortable. You know, I was reading Mary Slessor's autobiography about Mary Slessor and how she was this woman from comfortable England who went down to uncom very uncomfortable jungles in Africa. And it was a struggle for her, especially at first, to sleep on floors of hay with bugs in the bed. <laughs> but eventually she got to the point in her life where she didn't want to go back to London. She didn't want to go back to England. Her place was where God had called her to. It wasn't comfortable but it's what she loved because that's where God had called her with all the bugs and with all the, the murderers and the adulterers and all their idolatrous practices. It was uncomfortable. It was a huge culture shock. 
but she no longer had a taste for the comforts of home after some years. Because she was just, she wanted to do God's work. And we must be simple and sincere, wanting to do God's work. Not letting anything get in the way. Not letting our physical condition, our age, our intellect, whatever it is we might feel is getting in our way. Keep us from doing God's work. We're not done. We're never done until we're dead. And that's just the beginning. (laughs) Any questions? Any comments? Substitute, yeah. We're there in the place of somebody else. You know, God's not here in the fullness of His glory doing His work. He has sent us to do it. Yeah. Anything else? Um, in the verse in Luke 15, 7, yeah. about joy over one sinner who repents. But this is the part that's always kind of thrown me. Mm-hmm. Then over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance, who mm-hmm. doesn't need to repent? Well, are, I mean, yeah. that, but I'm just... Yeah, and it's a good question, and there have been multiple opinions about what that means. The two sides of it are people who are already saved, people who are already part of God's family. Um, God has rejoiced over them when they came into the family. And now he's rejoicing over this new person who's coming to the family. And then the other side of it is, um, the other thing that I've read is that people think this means people who think they're righteous. Think, people who think they're self-righteous. Um, they think they don't need to repent of anything. Like the Pharisees. Like the Pharisees. The, God doesn't rejoice over them, people who are self-righteous. He rejoices over that person who will accept the fact that they're lost and be brought back home. Because people who don't accept that they're lost will never come back home. <laughs> right? I, I guess if it just said people who don't repent, mm-hmm. maybe a little bit easier. Repents, that's the part that's always kind of done. Yeah. And his point here is to show God's passion for the lost, the passion for the sinners, God's passion for the people that the Pharisees were not passionate about. The Pharisees, <coughs> they were good, you know. They're good with their Jewish culture and their Jewish traditions. It's all good. But they, they refuse to go to the people that would make them feel not all good. <laughs> you know. So, you can interpret that either way. But I think we need, in, however we want to interpret this, we need to keep the big picture in mind that Jesus is talking about. God is passionate about the lost people. He wants to go and get them. He wants to go and get them and bring them back. Bring them into the family. That's the big idea that Jesus is trying to portray. And if you would translate that one way or the other, I wouldn't judge you for either one. <laughs> but it would include both of them. Yeah. <clears throat> because he still rejoices over the, the other one. No right. Which group you're comparing it to. Right. Yeah. And, and we will all rejoice that. together. Right. And there's, there will be a day, the Bible says, where we who um, planted the seed and we who reap the harvest will also rejoice together over that person's conversion. So we're all, there's going to be lots of rejoicing over this commission. <laughs> God and the angels and you and I will be all rejoicing together, together up in, the, up in heaven. There's going to be lots of rejoicing. 
Over who? The lo- all these lost people that have come to God. We're receiving the redemption in Christ Jesus. Anything else?